broadcasting from the campus of Lynn Benton Community College. We are the Mid-Valley STEM CTE Hub. I'm your host, Casey, and this, this is Closing the Gap. Hello, everyone. I'm once again joined by West Albany High School student and friend of the show, Tori Thorpe. Today, we are talking to Veronica Kevinson, a postdoctoral fellow in the microbiology department at Oregon State University. Veronica is making some meaningful scientific contributions in the areas of marine microbial ecology and the expansion of the genetic code in microbes that live in the human gut. Hi, Veronica. Thanks for speaking with us today. Hello. We're very interested in hearing your story. So let's get the show rolling. Take it away, Tori. So how did you first become interested in marine science and biochemistry, specifically like your study of microbes? Did it evolve as you went through school or did you always know that your current career was the end goal? Uh, So when I first went, when I started my undergraduate career, I wanted to study sociology and be a social worker. And so I took classes at a community college, um, like anthropology, sociology, and things like that. And then there was a science class um, that was supposed to be for like biology majors offered in the summer. So I took it partially to fulfill my science requirement, but the professor made it really interesting. And so I got like more and more excited about it. And I learned that there was a study abroad class and field work in Costa Rica that this professor was offering. And so I started just taking more and more science classes. And then I decided to do biology and eventually biochemistry. And then I realized scientists get to go on research vessels and like to Antarctica and in submarines and do all this exploration. And it was like a ongoing thing. It wasn't like a thing of the past where there were explorers or or what have you. And so I decided I wanted to do some kind of environmental and marine work. And so I decided to major in marine science for my uh, graduate studies. And I did get to go on a research vessel. So yeah, that's awesome. So the interest in science fields didn't evolve until you were in college. Correct. Yeah, I, I, I thought the classes would be too difficult. And I wasn't sure if I can like, if I would do okay in those classes, I kind of avoided them. I was like, Oh, those are the hard classes. I can't take those classes. And so I only did tried it because of a requirement. And then it was not that much harder than or it wasn't much harder or very different really from the other classes I was taking. And so then it started to seem like, Oh, maybe it's this is an option. Maybe I could do this. Maybe I am smart enough to take these classes. Yeah, that's really cool. And now you have a PhD in marine science. So look how far you've come. Yeah, that stuff seems kind of weird to me. I'm like, yeah, I I do. But um, it it just seems weird because I really looked up to all these people who were just graduate students, let alone people who had finished graduate school. And than I did. And so it's kind of a surreal feeling. Yeah. So what do you, what do you consider some of your greatest accomplishments in your career so far? Uh, I think 
one of the things that really like turned things for me or like changed my attitude. So I was kind of insecure before grad school. I was insecure in grad school. And I had a project that sort of didn't make sense for a long time. And I just kept thinking about it. And, and it was my project for years. And it's this DDT dump site off the coast of California um, that I studied for my PhD. And I figured out how to, I figured out what the, what the sort of main findings were. Uh, and it's hard to describe that. I, I think there's a lot of detail and nuance there, but I figured out this key piece and then I started collecting data and all of it supported this. And it was this really new idea. And once I had that, I was just so excited. I was like, oh, I can come up with an idea and then look into it and collect data or look at data and then like create this like new piece of knowledge. And then we eventually we published uh -huh, this paper about it. And I think that just changed everything. I was like, oh, I could do this. Not just, you know, take the classes, but contribute to science in some kind of meaningful way. Yeah, that's really exciting when you can like see your work in action. Like it's, it's in a paper and people can read it and like gather data from it. Yeah, that was just like sort of changed everything for me. That's when I was like, okay, this is what I want to do. Like this is this is really exciting and it seems important, I hope. And, and so that's when I really decided I wanted to pursue a career in research and that that's what my goal would be. Yeah, that makes sense. What do you hope that you'll be able to accomplish in the future? Like, what do you see yourself doing? Uh, so I guess I split it sort of in two pieces. One is like career-wise, like what's your title? And then the other one is like, scientific questions wise, like what questions can you answer? How, how are you gonna answer them? And so career wise, I hope to stay in, in doing research and, and, and in academia if possible because of the sort of freedom to pursue your ideas um, as compared to industry, like working for a company that has a specific goal that's sort of predetermined. Um, so I wanna stay in research and, and continue to answer questions about various processes, chemical, biological, and what have you. And I think that evolves as it goes. So I don't want to say, oh, I want to discover this. I think I just want to discover, you know, and, and look into things that are actually occurring or like correctly describe new things that are happening or unknown things that are happening. And I don't know what those will be until I have that data. <laughs> Um, so I guess my goal is just to carry on with this sort of work and to have, I, I think, the privilege to get to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. Just continue going along with the scientific process until you find something. Um, so what have been some of your biggest challenges if, as you've gone through school and then um, entered a career in the STEM fields? What have you run into that you had to overcome? I think the biggest part was, I think perhaps maybe trusting myself that I'll like figure out how to do something. I sort of went into it very 
um, timid, you could say, and almost like asking permission. Sorry, this is the puppy. So I went into it very um, timidly, almost like asking permission, like, can I look at this data? Is it okay if I, if I check this? Am I doing this the right way? Like, do, do I dare do this? And even if it's really minor, like, I, I don't know what examples I could bring up, but then sort of becoming more confident and trusting myself that I'll, that I'll figure out a way to do something. And then also interacting with the, you know, the, the world around me and the institutions and the people and, and things like that, and sort of figuring out how to navigate that landscape, like what's expected and, what's a reasonable approach? What, what is a mentor or an advisor? What's their role? What's my role? How do we communicate? And how do we get to our you know, end goal of whatever research project is happening? Yeah, that makes sense. Was publishing that paper and like seeing it in physical form, was that kind of one of the turning points where like you started getting more confident in yourself? Yeah, I think that's when, uh -huh kind of everything changed that was also my the sixth year of my phd so it took some time <laughs> um but uh yeah i think because the, i guess writing a manuscript and then submitting it for publication the manuscript all the co-authors read it then reviewers read it the editor reads it and everyone's sort of critiquing it or looking into ways does this make sense is this logical and so going through that process is challenging, but it's also very validating because these people are think, you know, essentially saying that everything that's here, I think makes sense. And so to go through that process and then come out of it and have this paper is so exciting. Um, and then sort of no one really knowing the story, not really paying attention to this project the entire time I was working on it, which was six years and maybe more now. Um, and then, and then it ends up being on the front page of the Los Angeles Times, you know, this huge readership and then getting into the New York Times and CBS and all this other stuff. And now it's in a book um, and people, people are like, oh, I heard about this project or I heard about this, you know, DDT dump site. And I'm like, I studied that, like, that was my, like, you know, I live, breathe, I, I live that, you know, for all these years. Um, it's just really, I don't know, it's a it's really weird feeling, an interesting feeling. Yeah, I can imagine how surreal it is to see your work in the front of like a national publication. Yeah, I have a copy of it. I asked the, so the report, I talked to the reporter um, like a number of times and she sent a copy and we were chatting about it and uh -huh, she just did such an amazing job getting the science right, which is hard because communicating with scientists and then being very specific about sorry uh, uh, should i start that over sorry uh, um so uh, i'm not sure i don't know it uh if you wanted to just maybe start on that like last sentence or like maybe rephrase your thought um it just kind of the um dog's noise kind of overpowered your voice yeah, he's ripping apart uh, something. Uh, what was the last sentence I was saying, or what was the question? Sorry. Uh, you're talking about how you were having a conversation with the reporter, and she sent you the oh, article. Uh, so the, the DDT story, the Barrow dump site story, appeared in the Los Angeles Times, and I spoke with the reporter um, like a number of times as that was coming together, and I was so impressed with how 
everything was so accurate. And there are always these little nuanced details. Um, yeah, and it's very difficult to tell it to to you know talk about a topic like that. And so just reading that and seeing everything sort of come together was really exciting. And and she spoke with a number of different people about why the story was sort of overlooked for so many years. And then talking to her afterwards, she received this huge public response and people have been contacting her and my PhD advisor and me about, you know, about the CDT dump site. Um, and it's been interesting to see how people feel, you know, compelled to look to, to care about this. Uh -huh. And so that's been really rewarding. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, so I'm going to switch the tone a little bit um, and talk about uh, kind of the STEM fields um, and how gender plays a role in that. Um, do you think that women are viewed differently than men as a minority in STEM fields or how do you think gender kind of affects that dynamic? Uh, so I think a lot of people sort of think, oh, it's over, like everything's fine now. And, I, you know, that's kind of an attitude that I've come across. and. Uh, in a lot of instances, I won't really engage with people who sort of think that it's not an issue, who, you know, kind of don't want to hear about it. But if you, I think if you look at the literature, you know, looking at the literature, people have written about this and scientists study this exact thing. And one of the papers that I, um, that I think showed this very clearly described how two people, um, there are two resumes that were sent out for a job, a lab manager job. And one was Jennifer and the other was John. And they had the exact same credentials, the exact same experience. Everything was identical. The only difference was one was John and one was Jennifer. John received more job offers and jo John received more uh, a higher uh, pay level. And so despite having identical everything, except the name, John fared better than Jennifer. And I think this study is very recent, like a couple, maybe two years or something like that. And so I think it's very much uh, not a solved problem. Yeah, I think I read somewhere that it'll take over 200 years for like even the wage gap to be completely closed. Yeah, people are like, oh, it's fixed. Uh, and my personal least favorite is that it's actually easier for women in STEM fields. And of course, I, I mean, people are going to think what they want to think, but if they want to just ignore the science behind it, I mean, I think that is a big part of the problem. And so uh, it's, I think it's far from fixed. Uh -huh. Clearly, that is just the case. And it's not, you know, it's not easier for women in STEM fields. And so, uh, you know, that is a very, I think a very difficult piece of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think it definitely affects the way that um, kind of careers and college opportunities are marketed to high school students or people that are going into college for something. Um, do you, what do you think can be done to like kind of spread the word to women about career options in STEM fields, specifically women that are starting an education in STEM fields or going into that? I think that there are a number of things that could be done. Um, 
I was really fortunate in that I transferred from a community college to Mount Holyoke College, in, which was the, I think the first of the seven sister schools of the women's colleges. And the, I, I had a mentor na there named, um, that was uh, Dr. Becky Packard. And she wrote a book called Successful STEM Strategies for Underrepresented Groups, something like that. And she talks about, you know, what, what has been shown to be successful. And she was doing work at Mount Holyoke to help women who had transferred from community colleges. And I think that it's sort of a, there's like sort of two pieces to it. One is like one-on-one, -on -one, internship, mentorship, training. And the other is, um, sort of more group things and like giving a seminar, doing a talk, uh, visiting a school and sort of making it known that this is an option and it, that, that going into STEM is an option that people do, you know, I, I visited the community college where I was a student and the students there are like, oh, it's, you know, Dr. Veronica Kewinson and they look at me and I'm like, don't look at me like that. Um, I sat in that seat, I got like a 75 on that exam. Um, I, you know, worked at Dunkin Donuts, I took the bus, I fell asleep in class. I did my homework at the last minute. I was scared of taking genetics too because I heard the lab was too hard. And so like, don't look at me like that. Like if I could, you know, I think that, and I, I, I hesitate to say if I could do this, you could do this because I feel like I've had a lot of support that's not available to everyone. And so I feel like that's the key and it's institutional and individual. Like I feel like both are necessary. And so I, part of the reason that I wanna stay in academia is to like, my dream is to be a professor and to start my own lab and train students and also have graduate students like visit community colleges or visit undergraduate institutions and talk to the people there so that they see that it's you know that it's an option and to offer them internships and to pay them for those internships and sort of various pieces like that um i think are important yeah i think a lot of women think that there has to be like some special circumstances for them to go into that sort of field like they have to be some sort of prodigy or like really talented at it and not just because they're interested in it. Yeah, I hate the like the myth of like the the like lone male prodigy who discovers this or that. And um it's just I think that that's like the societal construct, but it's sort of inflicted on everyone. And I think unnecessarily and I want to like peel that away and get rid of that like no here here's the real story behind that and I don't know one thing I was reading about is like the Nobel Prizes like all these men who received the Nobel Prize but how there's this always a story behind that and it's not the, necessarily the story that people hear and it's a much more complicated story about who did what? What research was done? Who discovered what? One of you know the there's a famous one with Rosalind Franklin and DNA, and I think about how many other women are like that, and and people who, you know, men stole credit from, um, that remain unknown, and that we don't hear about, uh, and I don't know. I I think that it's just so prevalent and so you know, I think that connecting with people is so important and just sort of talking about all of this. Yeah, 
I read a book about that as well and it mentioned like Rosalind Franklin and everything and it kind of made me realize like people say that women are getting more into STEM topics um, because uh, like everything is kind of progressing but women have always been in STEM topics they've always been discovering things they're just now demanding to be like credited for that and heard yeah exactly it's uh it's it's weird like I feel like the more I sort of look into it the more the curtain sort of falls away and I keep thinking oh okay I see it now and then the more I look I'm like no there's more there's even more um so I feel like I'm kind of still figuring it out as well but definitely seeing that and and you know, sort of looking at how people get credit and, and how people progress and how it feeds itself. So in my career, um, in my career path, and I guess generally for researchers, you know, there's so many places where this happens. One example is just having a female name um, can make it more difficult to publish in, you know, a prestigious journal, certain prestigious journals. And then if you don't publish there, it's more difficult to get funding. And if you don't get funding, then it's more difficult to have options in terms of what research you're doing to pursue your ideas. And so it's like the cycle that feeds on itself, a very negative cycle. And that is just so like complex and it's convoluted and there's so many pieces to it. And so it's just such a joke when people are saying, oh, this is over, this is easier for women. And it's just, I don't know, just, that's just so ridiculous to me. I think that even looking into it, I only see the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of things that need to be picked apart and like really looked at um, to be able to fix the problems because there's just so many pieces. I, I've that's actually really cool. looked wow. into the Mount Holyoke when I was kind of looking for colleges to apply to this year. So that's kind of interesting. Um, isn't it like all women's? Yeah, I think so. It started as a women's college. Now it's like um, women's college and also, you know, and, and also non-binary trans. And they have a program for community college students to transfer in, which is what I did. Um, and then non-traditional students, so students that are 24 and older. And it's called the Francis Perkins program. And it's a pro and Francis Perkins uh, I won't, it's, it, there's a lot of history there, why it's called the Francis Perkins program. Um, I, I don't know, it's just an amazing place. It made a huge impact in my life. It's a wonderful community. For me also, it was um, almost free to go there. And now I think they did make it free for Francis Perkins scholars. I, I think it's like tuition free and I forget what the residential um, part of it is. But basically like, they wanna, recruit students who are going to be you know competitive scholars and that doesn't mean just people who are 18 you know and so um so they have this really excellent community and I lived in a house uh, and it was 12 students all you know non-traditional students and I was talking to one of them right before I talked to you and she got into the PhD program at UC Davis and she just got a, she got received the, she was awarded a fellowship. So she is, you know, this starting this exciting, you know, graduate school journey, but we were next door neighbors at Mount Holyoke and we're still friends. Like I was there from 2011 to 2013 and 
so like 10 years later um but yeah I think it cost like at the time for me it was like three or four thousand dollars and they covered like fifty five thousand um but and I think now it's something like that or it's just they cover all of it for students who qualify and I don't remember what all the rules are um oh I should have read up about it but yeah I love Mount Holyoke if you ever want to talk about Mount Holyoke separately from like right now I will talk about it and or any of the stuff we talked about actually like probably for way too long too <laughs> um what made you move to the west coast because Mount Holyoke is on the east coast right yeah, I, I, so I grew up in Brooklyn, then I went to school, to, to community college in Boston, and then Mount Holyoke, which is Western Massachusetts. Um, and then I wanted to do, first I wanted to do biology, and then I wanted, I got into scuba diving, and I wanted to like be an explorer and all this stuff and explore the world. And so I only applied to like, play, uh, to graduate programs in places that I thought would be cool to live in. And I wanted to live in California, like Santa Barbara seemed like an awesome place to live. And there's amazing diving there at the Channel Islands. And so I just, I wanted to travel and to see new places and, and going to a graduate program in a new place seemed like a good way to do that. Also, there was a, they, the, um, my PhD advisor said that he had a research cruise and they'd be using submersible robots and a submarine. And I got to go on a submarine. <laughs> um so it's just cool opportunities cool place cool opportunities um so one of the things that women struggle with is like being talked down um to or uh you know the concept of mansplaining mm -hmm. um and that's that's definitely been a thing throughout all the fields but especially in stem fields um that's a pretty prevalent issue have you had any experiences of men talking down to you or explaining something that you already know? And how do you deal with that kind of thing? I'd say, yeah, that definitely happens a lot. Um, I used to, you know, want to read like 10 papers on one topic and like know every single piece before I like meekly and timidly say, oh, I think that maybe this is this way. And then people would, you know, barge in and be like, oh, this and this, I don't know, like, I think it's that way. It's probably that way. I didn't read anything, but I, I can tell you what's up. And as I go forward in my career, I sort of notice it more because I've become more confident or I have, you know, sort of acquired more knowledge on a certain topic. And so I feel more comfortable with it. And one topic that's come up a number of times for me is this DDT dump site. And so for my PhD, I studied this for six years, along with a team of people, I wrote a paper and, and, you know, made these discoveries and people have tried to explain to me about it. Um, and I guess it, it, because it, it got a lot of attention. So people were talking about it and they're like, hey, your work is kind of about this. You know, I read I read about this dump site over there and they found this and that. I'm like, oh, did they? <laughs> this mysterious day, please tell me more. What did they find? Fascinating. I do study something kind of like that. Um, but I, I don't know. I try to just spend as good old time as possible on people that I think are like hopeless or useless. 
Um, <laughs> and so I, oh, excuse me, I have a phone call. Um, or I try with the humor, you know, uh, and to, you know, if, if it's not worth my time to engage with them, you know, if it's some random guy who, you know, wants to explain it. Um, and so in those cases, I just kind of, you know, keep it short. Uh -huh. And if it's someone that, you know, I'm, I'm working with or someone that is, you know, part of a group or a department or, a, you know, community that I belong to, then I'll just be sort of more gently explaining that or mentioning, yeah, I, I got that study or I, I, I spent my PhD on that. I think it's exciting that, you know, you're interested in this. And, and I think that it is important that people are interested in, you know, this topic, this DDT site or something like that. So I guess it depends who is chatting about it. <laughs> Yeah, that makes sense. I, I think it's interesting how you said that you used to like consume like all of the papers and knowledge on a topic before you make an assertion about it. And then men would just come in and be like, actually, I think this thing. And that would just pretty much overpower your voice, even though you had more research and background on it. Yeah, that took me a long time to realize that was happening because they'd say it so confidently. I'd assume, well, you know, I read 10 papers. He must have read 20 papers where I studied this for, you know, two or three years. He must have studied it more where he must understand it better because he's so confident about it. And then I realized how that confidence can be so disconnected from the actual knowledge um about a topic and then I I would just you know now I just almost like check in with myself I'm like okay what what is this environment what's the context for this conversation and also kind of pragmatically what do I hope to you know gain from this conversation or achieve from this or why am I talking to this person um and then decide sort of based on that but I I don't let pe people sort of just make these assertions and make me sort of run off back to the library to read up. I'm like, wait, what makes you say that? Or what's that based on? Or what's what's a source for that? Um, or tell me more about this. What makes you say that? You know, and sort of get at it and see if it's actually coming from, you know, a solid place or something that could be maybe useful. Maybe I did miss something, or or not. And then we can sort of move on from it. Um, so I feel like I've gotten better at that, but yeah, that took years and I wish that I sort of saw that sooner, but I think as a society, like, I don't blame myself. I think that it's sort of a societal thing that's, um, sort of put on a lot of people. Like, I don't, I think I'm hardly alone and, you know, sort of behaving in that manner. And that's because it's sort of a societal or cultural thing to impose on certain people this you know, attitude of being very unsure. Yeah, I completely agree. It's definitely just ingrained in society and the system and everything. Um, so do you have any advice for women who are looking to follow a similar career path to you? Uh, I think that it's hard to give advice because I feel that people sort of, you know, I sort of figured out these steps and I, you know, was able to do this. So I feel kind of silly, like, of course, I think other people can also do that. Um, but, and so I feel always like, who am I to give advice, I guess. But at the same time, when I was a student at the community college, graduate students came and gave talks and they're like, 
oh, this is what I study and I get paid. I get paid as a PhD student. I don't pay tuition. I make an income as a you know, graduate student researcher. And that sort of blew my mind. I was like, oh, you can, you can do that. And so I think that, um, I don't know. I think the advice I would give is to try to connect with people, whether it's going to a talk that someone's giving, even if the research sounds kind of boring, just to sort of connect <laughs> to connect with them. We can't love every you know piece of research out there, but to, to try to connect with people and 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 talk to them and ask, like, how did you get into this? Do you know of any opportunities? Um, I've, I've talked to a lot of students and helped them email people that they want to work with or apply for internships. And so I think the advice would be to, uh, to try to apply and assume maybe I can get this. Maybe this person will talk to me. Maybe I can get this internship. Maybe it'll be worth it to check out this opportunity or that one. Um, of course, those opportunities have to be out there. People have to be, you know, and so I think that I think that it's difficult. And so I, I think that it's not on the student to figure out how to get into the career. It's on people in the career to figure out how to engage with students. And so I'd say like cut yourself a break too. And, but if something comes along to, to try to connect with those either individuals or a program or a professor or to ask a professor if they know another professor and, and not to, and to follow up. Because people, you know, you might email, I email my genetics professor and, you know, she replied, but if she didn't, um, it wouldn't, it wasn't, it wouldn't be because she didn't want to talk to me, it was because she was busy. So I guess some persistence and talking to professors and to talking to different individuals that are, you know, a potential connection to this field of research. Um, my genetics professor took me to an open house at a laboratory and they had an internship program there. And that was my first foray into research. And the internship was only for veterans, like armed forces, like soldiers, Navy. Um, but I went to this open house just because I had never been in a research lab. So it's like, what's it look like? I'm not you know, eligible to go to this, but can I just tag along? And they let me tag along. And then the coordinator of that program was like, we actually have extra spots if you want to apply. And three people applied and all three people got jobs and we all worked in a chemist in chemistry labs and that opened so many doors for us but we weren't even gonna go like we we're like oh, I don't know if I should go to this thing it's not for me it's you know and so I think a lot of it is luck but and then a, a lot of it is jumping on these opportunities and persistence and like you know trying to connect with people yeah, it's interesting how that like one little decision to go to that kind of changed a lot of things for you. Oh, it changed everything. I don't, so I worked at Dunkin' Donuts 5 a.m. to noon. I commuted, I had a heavy backpack, so I didn't want to go because I didn't want to ride the bus to this lab with my heavy backpack. And because I had this early 5 a.m. shift and afternoon classes and my genetics professor drove me in her like personal car to this lab to actually go there. I'm still friends with her. I talk to her students, um, or I'm now friends with her. I talk to her students. But at the time, she's like, Veronica, you should really go. You'll get, you know, everyone who goes gets extra credit or gets some, you know, lab points or something like that, I don't remember. And so I, I was hesitant to go. And then I was like, okay, 
this is a $4,000 job that I could have to work in a lab and be taught how to be like a scientist. And so that's also, I think a lot of it is luck because I feel like I also, like I did the work, but I also kind of got lucky too. And I hope to do that for other people now and to like pass on the favor. And I've worked with um, undergraduate students now as well. Yeah, I like that you have that mentor to kind of like push you past your comfort zone a little bit because like I mean would you have gone if she wasn't like hey you should go to this like you should really go yeah I would not have gone at all I wasn't even gonna go even when she pushed me I was like I don't know <laughs> she had to put you know really put some effort into getting me to go and so I mean I talked to her she knew me because I would come to office hours and be like I don't know how to do this. This class is too hard. I'm freaking out. I'm going to, I need help. I need extra help with these assignments. And so I, it's also like this idea, like, oh, you're su super smart and everything like, and that's why it worked out. And it's like, no, she pushed me because she knew me from office hours and she knew I'd try hard. But then, yeah, now I, I have trained some of her students as the mentor and I want to keep doing that. Like, I want to be a scientist who gets to work with students. Um, but I think that, first of all, someone had to set that up, that open house. Then someone else had to get funding to pay those undergraduate students to work in the lab. Then an, an actual lab had to host them and train them. And then the professor at the community college had to, you know, encourage strongly students to actually show up and attend. And so that's why, you know, that's what I want to do, but that's also something that's not necessarily available to everyone. Um, so I feel incredibly fortunate that I got that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a really cool story about how it's like really interesting how that's evolved and for you. And yeah, I just really like that. Um, so those are all the like, uh, questions about your your field and everything that we have um so my last question for you is what do you like to do for fun in your spare time yeah for my spare time I think there's two favorite things one is walking with the puppy in the woods uh he's so joyful this dog I got him he's a COVID puppy so he was a puppy when COVID started he's actually like 80 pounds now but I still think he's a puppy um and scuba diving, which I got into as an undergrad at Mount Holyoke at this um, undergraduate college I went to. And you can see giant Pacific octopus. And to me, that's just mind blowing. Like you can just see them in the wild. Like, what are you doing today? Oh, I'm going to go 100 feet underwater and like go look at an octopus and cruise around down there. Um, so when I have time, that's when I, I run off to um, to go diving or in the woods. I was just going to say thank you for joining us today. Uh, thank you for having me on here. I think it's just, I don't know, it's just really great. I'm like really flattered and I don't know, just like excited to talk about everything. So yeah, thanks for inviting me. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Closing the Gap. If you like this show, subscribe on Spotify. You can also find us on Instagram at MVSTEMCTE, on Twitter at MidValleySTEM, and online at midvalleystem.org. Until next time, keep progressing.